Hey, just a warning. This episode contains content that might be triggering if you have or have struggled with an eating disorder or food and body image issues. And it may also be really helpful. So listen at your own discretion and turn it off, call a friend, pause the show and get yourself grounded, whatever you need to do if it feels like too much. Okay, here we go. Every once a month, our group brings in a breakfast for our meeting and the same things are said every, oh, this is low calorie, so we don't have to worry about it. Or, oh no, I should only, I shouldn't have one of these because if I have one, I'll have 20 or I shouldn't have one at all because that's bad. Somebody pointed at donuts and said, that's the bad food. And I was like, yes, that's the food of hardened criminals. And if we eat it, we will, we will become one. I feel very guilty. Like even it was so funny. We brought like champagne to this park, and I'm like in the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't want to have a glass. Like I'm trying to fit into this dress for Vegas. Like I'm just I like trying to keep the calorie count like as low as possible. And they're just like, we're pouring you a glass. And so I, you know, I drank it, but it's just like, you know, I do like at some level, I always do feel guilty for something that's so small and insignificant. But yeah, if it's if I'm with like a lot of women, like maybe from work, and we're all going, and they're all picking a healthy option, I won't eat what I actually want to eat. I want you to take a moment to think about how you eat, or actually, even better, think about how you think about how you eat, and what you feel about how you eat. How do you decide what you want? How do you decide what you need? And what do you say to yourself when you eat a cookie or when you eat a salad or pizza or french fries or processed food or organic food, gluten, dairy, fat, kale? What beliefs do you carry with you about right and wrong when it comes to food? And where did you get that from? Almost no one is free of beliefs, rules, attitudes about food. But some of us have experienced an undue amount of emotional pain as a result, riding this roller coaster of harshly conditional self-love. And some people develop full-blown eating disorders where rules and punishment and rebellion formulate some of the most wretched, soul-destroying patterns to break free from. But ultimately, whether you have an eating disorder or you're caught up in dieting or some other kind of disordered eating, The truth is, it's probably not about the food. I'm Lily Sloan, and this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, a podcast that brings therapy to you. And I am so fortunate to have a co-host for this episode, my dear, dear friend and colleague, Jessica Brown. Are you ready? Yeah. Open the door anytime you need some air, but just for the actual recording, it should be closed. Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. Starting. Wait, do I press record? Okay, got it. Got it. Oh, hi. Hey. So, Jessica, why was I able to convince you to make this episode with me? Firstly, because you're a badass and I love this podcast, so it's an honor to be invited. But also because I feel that food is such a huge part of our lives. I mean, it's something we need. And because body image is so attached to what we eat, it's just a huge daily struggle for so many of us. Well, I'm really happy to have your help because this is a weighty topic, no pun intended, that, you know, I tried to tackle it last year and I just couldn't. 
you know, I'm someone who struggled and still struggles on this path to accepting my body. And it's really nice to have a buddy to help me sort through these ideas, especially when even that idea, accepting my body, is a controversial statement. Yeah, it can be hard to think about and synthesize these ideas intellectually and also package them for an audience when there's all these emotions that come up with this topic. So I'm with you and I'm excited to dig in. All right. Well, I think we should set the stage and talk about two separate but maybe not so separate issues, eating disorders and disordered eating. Yeah, those two things are often held as very different. And in some ways they are, but I don't think either of us are totally convinced we can completely detach the two. Yeah, and we'll get to that. But first, I want to briefly define each. So I spoke with Nicole Labby, who is an amazing eating disorder specialist in Berkeley, California. And she also produced the PBS documentary Erasing Ed. Wait, who's Ed? Oh, right. Yeah, that's just an acronym for eating disorder. Oh, got it. And then she also co-authored the Erasing Ed handbook, which I use a lot in my work. So all that to say, Nicole knows what she's doing, and she's helped her clients recover from some pretty horrific places. Awesome. With an eating disorder diagnosis, there is this internal charge, emotional charge, that propels the individual to engage in the behaviors, whether it's binge eating, restricting, compulsive exercise, um, purging. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of desperate, desperateness, um, inability to challenge the internal superego, negative inner critic. So Nicole says an eating disorder gets in there so deep it becomes an identity. It's something to organize oneself around. Let me give you an example. So if you would ask a client who's anorexic, what would it be like without your eating disorder? He or she might say, I wouldn't be special anymore. I feel like my thinness defines me. And then someone who binge eats might say, Food has been my friend since I can remember. And to take that away from me means to take away my support. Or in the case of bulimia. I get so much out of having something that's mine. Nobody can see it. I don't look anorexic. Um, I don't look particularly overweight. Nobody can see this. And I have this thing. And it's there. I can depend on it. And what would I do without it? I have no idea because I don't know what to do with time. Time makes me anxious, so what will I do without my eating disorder? It gives me structure. And I think Nicole contrasted this by saying disordered eating can mean a lot of different things. Um, Just basically not having a good foundation of how to eat, not having learned that. It could be anxiety or stress that sort of gets in the way of the person listening to their um, physical cues, hunger and satiety cues. Right. So I think we should be really specific and focus on the kind that I think is more closely related to an eating disorder, which is the dieting kind of realm. So it's that time of year when many people have vowed to lose all that holiday weight or they're joining gyms, they're trying a new revolutionary method of cleansing their bodies of toxins that are supposedly making them fat and they start a new diet. 
And we're getting to the point when this starts to fall apart and the shame and the disappointment kick in. Oh, yes. The infamous get bikini ready time of year. And if it's not as blatant as that, it's talked about as getting healthy or eating clean. Because, you know, you're dirty. You're so, so dirty. Wait, can you smell me right now? Oh, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. It's just radio. (laughs) Okay. So maybe before we talk more about what all this means, can you tell us a bit more about the whole dieting thing? Great idea. Okay, let's go over some numbers. One 2012 article I found puts the diet industry at $20 billion annually, with 108 million dieters making four or five attempts per year, 85% of them female. By the way, men get eating disorders, men have body image issues, and men diet. But we're going to focus on women a bit more in this episode. And men, that doesn't mean you won't relate or get something out of what we're talking about. Body issues in men aren't completely different. So while ideas about how to lose weight are changing and companies making diet foods like Jenny Craig and SlimFast have seen their markets tank, mainstream consensus seems to still be that we have a serious obesity problem and that being fat is a disease in of itself and that weight loss should still be a primary goal for anyone above an acceptable BMI, which is the body mass index, even though the BMI has been shown to be a highly arbitrary measure of health and fitness. And what is considered a healthy weight is so culture bound. Ugh, it's a real shit show. I'm just getting started. Wait till you hear about the effectiveness of dieting. Oy vey. Yeah, I'm gonna bring in some help for this one. Well, I'm Glennis Oyston, and I'm a registered dietitian. I'm also um, a non-diet activist. I just made that word up. And um, I write a blog, Dare to Not Diet. It's daretonotdiet.com. And I talk about not dieting and figuring out how to get around the societal BS of how we're all supposed to lose weight and look a certain way and eat a certain way. And um, I talk about how that's really not probably a very healthy way to live. So Glennis is also co-host of a great podcast called Dietitians Unplugged, where she and her dietitian buddy Aaron Flores are trying to help listeners continue on their path towards having a healthier relationship to food and to their bodies. That's fantastic. But I'm guessing many people are wondering why Glennis says dieting is unhealthy. So it started out with my personal experience of being a longtime dieter, and that's actually why I decided to become a dietitian. And just as I was starting school full time, I had a nutrition class with uh, this professor, Linda Bacon, who wrote a book called Health at Every Size. And she introduced me to this concept of the, the fact that dieting is actually a pretty unsuccessful un- endeavor for most people, that most people who intentionally lose weight usually end up gaining it back, which was a little bit opposite to my experience. But as I sort of listened to her talk about the facts and uh, the scientific statistics around uh, weight loss and regain, and I realized that the things I was doing to maintain my weight loss were kind of insane. I was eating so restrictively and living in sort of a fear that it 
it eventually made sense to me that, yeah, you either lose weight and gain it all back because you just can't live like that, or you do what I do and you just develop incredibly disordered eating patterns and a terrible relationship to food. And that's how you keep the weight off. And I realized that that's a terrible way to live. I don't want to live that way anymore. And so as I started to look more into it, I really did look at the studies around weight loss. And most studies are, they study weight loss participants for two years max. And usually even by the end of the two years, they... Participants in the studies have usually gained half their weight back, even by two years. But the studies call that a success. Oh, they, they kept their weight off. If you start looking at the data three years out, five years out, if you can find it, most people have regained at least some or all, and a lot of them have gained even more weight than what they started at. So what we end up with is people who are actually losing weight, yes, successfully initially, but in the long run, they might actually end up fatter than what they started. And so the more you look at the studies that are available out there, it's really astounding. It's like, why are we pursuing this still? Seriously, why are we still pursuing this? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of reasons and angles we can take to analyze this issue, and I doubt we'll hit on everything in this one episode, but I think there's got to be something beneath all of this that goes beyond simple misinformation or inconclusive science about health, something that taps into our psyches individually and also societally. Oh, do tell. Well, maybe we should first go back to some of that stuff about eating disorders. Maybe the more extreme can illuminate something about dieting and disordered eating. I think this is a good time to bring in another special person I talked to. Oh, yeah. My name is Jesse Conweiler. I am a writer, director, actor, Aquarius, single. Because you never know who's listening. That's right, boys. Jesse is single. And she's also a rising internet star. After she put out a short film on YouTube called Meet My Rapist that went viral. And yet she says making a somewhat comedic short film about her experience as a rape survivor felt even less controversial than her more recent project, which is a comedy web series about her bulimia called The Skinny. You can tell me anything. Anything. Okay. So here's the thing. Are you gay? No, Mom. You can be gay. Everybody's gay now, and it's all right. No, Mom. Our dog walker is gay. She's a lesbian. Although she seems profoundly unhappy, but... Oh, my God. You don't need to listen to Grandpa, because not everybody needs to have babies and, and get married right away. And it's have... not that, Mom. And you can always freeze your eggs. I am bulimic. I don't understand. I was, like, a little bulimic, and now I'm not anymore. So. Honey, you're not bulimic. I mean, it's not like a suggestion. Well, well, you're just, you're beautiful, and you're happy, and you're successful, and you're tan. So this show is actually executive produced by Transparence Jill Soloway, and it's been to Sundance. She's won a Webby Award. It's really tapping into something that more than just other bulimics are relating to. 
So Jessie's bulimia started when she was 16. And I was always like a very happy girl. I always had a lot of friends and never didn't. When I started throwing up, it wasn't like now I'm bulimic. Like I, it was just something that I did, and it was like I remember doing it, and it felt like coming home. Like it just felt so normal and natural to me, you know. And it would, it would ebb and flow. I was bulimic for ten years, and everything from diet pills to exercising to laxatives to binging to purging to not even doing those behaviors, but just thinking about them all the time. I think for me, the the eating disorder was a symptom of a larger problem. It was a it was a brain problem. It was a thinking problem. Like it wasn't like, okay, I'm gonna just stop throwing up and I'll just sit on my hands. Well part of it was about learning how to really eat and nourish and not restrict and, you know, just things that make sense. Like, oh, if I eat three meals a day, then I'm not going to binge at three in the morning. Like, I would just not eat all day and then binge at night. And it's like, oh, when you actually eat bread, you don't binge, you know? That's so, <laughs> yeah. What a, amazing, I just have a sandwich. It was amazing. Oh, my God. So, yeah. but it's stuff like that that I didn't realize, you know? And then I'm like, okay, so if I can do that and then just addressing the issues of, like, well, what's the same thing that made me want to eat? Oh, well, I believe, like, that there that, I'm, that there's something really wrong with me. And if you really knew me, you would, you know, it's just a deep-seated fear. It's all fear. Mm, so underneath the not eating all day and binging and purging at night, this behavior was a response to an unconscious, very real, very deep fear that something was really wrong with her. And I'm guessing that wrongness was projected onto her body. Right. It's like the body's some kind of scapegoat. And then there's the way that throwing up allows her to feel temporarily like she got all the badness out. Yeah, and that it's over now, you know, that the bad feelings are over. And the self-hate that comes along with eating a lot is over. She got rid of it. And, and viscerally, I mean, it's about getting rid of the bad feelings. It's not just the food. It's about getting purging out all the bad shit and starting over. And life doesn't work like that. Yeah, I just think of other self-harming behaviors, like cutting, for instance. These can be a way to externalize very intense internal pain. It makes it tangible and more within our control and can help us get the bad feelings out because they are too painful to sit with and feel. Like the binging gives the badness a physical manifestation that can be resolved by purging, by getting it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and eating disorders, there's such a feeling of internal chaos and emotional dysregulation that's being managed through these behaviors. Nicole Labby, who we heard from earlier, talks about how eating disorders are usually linked to family dynamics. And it, it can be a way to be seen or to hide in a dysfunctional system and manage feelings that we just didn't learn to cope so with. Full recovery from an eating disorder can't really happen unless you're in psychotherapy and you're dealing with your family of origin issues, your current issues in terms of intimacy, in terms of how you navigate yourself in the world. 
it's not simply just the food. You know, the food is a byproduct or the exercise is a byproduct of all these other things. That's important. What she says there about intimacy issues. Oh, yeah, that's huge. I see people in my practice who have eating disorders all along the spectrum of type and severity. And they're all dealing with some kind of intimacy issues at the core, like difficulty trusting those even closest to them, fear of abandonment, isolation. So what about when we shift it to dieting and more general body image issues? I'd argue that there's something similar going on. So I never had what would be considered an eating disorder diagnosis, yet I was still bogged down in black and white thinking about food. And I felt deep shame over the ways I couldn't seem to make my body how it was supposed to be. I thought I wouldn't be lovable until I was thin enough. So when I wasn't feeling loved, my body was a really convenient scapegoat. Yeah, I can relate to that. As a woman, especially, not that men are exempt, but as a woman, I feel it is a very common part of everyday life to be thinking about our bodies and how we look. We are so deeply socialized to link our success and worth to how we look. Oh, for sure. Yeah. In fact, I asked some of the ladies I spoke to at the park about this. What percentage of time do you think you spend worrying about about your body? basically every time I change so that's like what twice a day so I'd say every time I'm when I'm looking in the mirror probably like 20% of my day yeah I would say about the same really like when you're changing clothes like trying to figure out what to wear like just going to sleep how about you I probably think about it like all day yeah yeah like if I'm sitting a certain way definitely when I'm changing because I have like mirrors all over my room and like we have huge mirror in the bathroom. Um, but yeah, like anytime, like, you know, if you go to the bathroom, like you take off your pants, you know, it's like I'm constantly, or like you're sitting a certain way where you're uncomfortable and then you realize like, oh, my stomach's going a certain way or you see a girl at work who looks the way that you wish you would look. Like I, I'd say like probably like 30 or 40% of my day, I'm thinking about my body, definitely, yeah. I'm seeing my reflection in your sunglasses and it's like <laughs> affecting me. <laughs> Lily, I've got to say this is not surprising, but it's still painful to hear. Yeah, it is. So if we were to take a few primary themes from eating disorders and apply them to disordered eating, what would they be? Yeah, two things are coming to mind for me. First, that eating disorders are on a spectrum and that many people who engage in dieting behaviors without having a full-blown eating disorder are struggling with similar personal issues. And then second, that because so much of the dieting thing also comes from a culture that supports and promotes it and is fat shaming constantly, like what if we look at society itself as that dysfunctional family? Yeah, culture and all of its different authority figures have played a parenting role that's had positive and negative consequences for our psyches. Right. As a collective, we are carrying around a lot of anxieties. And in the U.S. and beyond, there's a lot of fear around aging, death, lack of control over these natural processes. We construct lots of defenses against feeling the reality of these concepts. Plastic surgeries and anti-aging skin products are so normalized. Yeah, totally. And and there's a line that gets crossed over and over that's delineating between taking care of our bodies and trying to pound them into submission. I'm thinking of the young woman we heard from earlier who's trying to fit into that dress for Vegas. 
why not buy a dress that fits as she is? Or when I've in the past expected myself to have tons of energy for a long run, even though I'd been restricting my caloric intake and, you know, I was kind of low on fuel. Yeah. There's something about these behaviors that's as unsustainable as demanding oil from a dying planet. Yeah, exactly. Our bodies are part of nature and have natural processes, a lot of which we still don't fully understand. And this is very uncomfortable for us as a society. I asked Glennis Oyston how she thinks this idea of control comes into play with disordered eating. I mean, it's. I think it's the thing that drives it, absolutely. It, it, I don't think we would eat in a restrictive way at all if it wasn't for this idea that we have to control our body. And I understand the compulsion because so much in life is out of our control. And again, it's just statistically, I think you can control it for a while or you can you can maybe control it long term if you put in, it becomes your job. If you put in an enormous amount of work and you do this 12 hours a day, that's your job. Um, I think you can successfully maybe control your body. But yeah, it, it does come down to this idea that if we somehow control our body and get it to the right size or shape, then all our problems are solved. And that I have found is also not the case at all. And I think other people have found that it ends up not being the, the case at all. You get to a certain weight, you know, you still have the same problems and thin people with even ideal, quote unquote, ideal bodies and shapes they have problems too. So it's just, yeah, I think this idea that we can manipulate our bodies, it's it's going to get us to nirvana somehow. And our lives are going to be great. I think that's this utopia that we're trying to grab at. And it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't exist. Yeah, but it's a very tempting fantasy that if I can control this thing, my body, I won't have to face loneliness. I won't have to face alienation loss, and ultimately death. Right. Earlier, Nicole Labby said there's a desperate desperateness that differentiates eating disorders from disordered eating. And I imagine in some ways this desperation is more tangible in an eating disorder. But I feel that desperate desperateness is just embedded in our culture. And how advertising plays into our deepest survival fears... Like, if I don't make myself a certain way, I'm going to be left and not loved. And if I'm left and I'm not loved, I will not survive. And this starts speaking to the heart of things as I see it. That in reality, we do age. We do have inevitable struggles in our lives. We get rejected. We lose people. We eventually die. And building more tolerance to accept this reality instead of defending against it in all these ways, like through substance use and money and social media and, you know, these food and body behaviors, the more we can accept it, the more we can really fully engage in our lives and our relationships. (laughs) I know of something awesome, Lily, that helps tackle this very issue. I think I do, too. Yeah, but nobody wants to go to therapy. (laughs) No, (laughs) nobody wants that. But seriously, therapy helps us learn how to be with our feelings. Accept loss, feel pain, feel our fears. That these behaviors and defenses are often covering up and we're hiding from. 
you know, the relationship with the therapist itself is a really vital way to work through intimacy issues like we were speaking about before. But then the whole process of therapy helps us to have more tolerance to be with ourselves and our emotions and also with our loved ones so that we don't have to split off and be in pain and isolation and hide the ways that we suffer and cope. Right, because eating disorders often are happening in secret and in isolation. And and though dieting has become this like community bonding activity, both actually lead to alienation, even though they're really about how we're trying to feel a sense of love and belonging and all the fear that we have wrapped up in that. So let's think about what it would be like to relate to food and our bodies if we were more open and connected to ourselves and others. Like, what even is normal eating in a society where we've been so socialized around those behaviors? Yeah, that's a good question. And when I was interviewing folks in bars and at the park, I was reminded of how confused about this most of us are. They said, like, salad isn't always the best option. Like, dressing's terrible for you, but... Carbohydrates are addictive. So are you all paying attention to calories? I don't. <laughs> all right, we got, we got one out of three. That sounds, that sounds accurate. My mom, like, encourages me. My I love bread. I love pasta, you know? And, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with it. But what I'm saying is when you cope with them and then your body craves them. So putting all of that aside for a moment, in the realm of eating disorder treatment and body positivity, We move towards normal eating when we're able to neutralize and, as Glennis says, liberalize all foods. We take everything out of the realm of good and bad so we can learn our preferences and how our body feels and what it needs from a more intuitive place. And normal does not mean we all eat the same way at all. In fact, it's more the opposite. I I think you have to spend some time eating some of that food you don't like or that you you know, that you you think is bad for you, I think it's worth it to experiment and give yourself some information around that. Like when I realized I'm just not that big of a fan of donuts, I was shocked because when I was a dieter, I, I went to give blood just to get the donuts. I mean, and then when I gave up dieting, I went to the same blood center and I had a donut and I realized, I think this is a day old and it's not even good. And I realized like, I don't even think I like donuts that much. And it was shocking to me, you know, so I know that I can eat the donut if I really want to, but in reality, I have other foods that I prefer. So it, it, it's important, I think, to liberalize all of those foods, to liberate all those foods from the moral jail that they're in. Wow. I can imagine this idea of letting all food be okay. And just experimenting would be really hard for many of us to swallow. But um, ching. Ha, ha, <laughs> ha. But yeah, like when we're taught to be so afraid of our bodies and of our desires. Like I told Glennis about how often when I propose to people who are really anxious about their weight that maybe they should try eating whatever they want. I, I really... I know it freaks people out. And a common response I get is, 
but all I'd want is cake all the time and I'd get so fat. (laughs) Yeah, people really are convinced of that. And as somebody who went from a dieting mindset to, okay, I'm just going to eat what I want. And if that's cake all the time, I'm going to eat it. You have a wall. You have the cake wall. You have the ice cream wall. Trust me, there is only so much you can eat of that. And you will hit it as long as you have truly liberated all of those foods in your mind to be sort of emotionally equivalent. What we've found with studies with rats and mice is that they're not choosing their foods, and especially if they're in the laboratory, but if we put them on sort of an intermittent diet of very highly palatable rat chow, like I call it rat ice cream, and then if you sort of, you know, uh, give it to them at at various times and then you kind of make them go a little bit hungry or don't give it to them for a while the next time they get it they actually binge on that food so we can even kind of recreate that in rats who probably don't have any moral (laughs) problems around food so what about emotional eating though sometimes we're having a bad day and we just really want a cookie or i'm really enjoying a feast and i'm full but i want a little more yeah Normal eating allows space for that, too. Eating is something that we do have to do for caloric intake to fuel our body, sure. But it's also a way of connecting with other people. I'm thinking of this Korean-American guy that I talked to at the bar. And being in an immigrant family, food is like this way of connecting with his parents when there's so many other gaps of language and culture between them. So I think it's interesting because like grew up in a family that really prioritized food. Like we had family meals pretty much every every night of the week. Um, I learned to cook at a really young age. So food has always had a different kind of, it was never like a thing that controls like how large or small you are. Uh, it was always just like a part of the culture that you had. It was there because it was not only just the, the deliciousness of it, but it was family time. It was um, what you did to like connect with your parents that you basically can't communicate with in many other ways. Um, so I never really... And food is also sensual and pleasurable, like like sex. You know, we derive pleasure from it and we need to stop making that a sin. Because that, ooh, that's so bad mentality is actually driving overeating. Like, as I address in the substance use episode, when we're having to sneak around and feel shame about what we're doing, it actually fuels this addictive kind of behavior. So look, I know I don't need to eat popcorn in front of the TV to meet my nutritional needs. Wait, you don't? I thought it was vitamin P. Uh, no. And I know that when I do it, I sometimes get a stomach ache and... I used to do this unconsciously, like all the time, but I understand a lot more like why I do it and what I'm getting from it. So now when I want to go for the popcorn, I'm able to really parse out why, you know, what feelings I'm trying to cope with in the moment, what kind of experience I'm trying to have, and I know the consequences. Then I make a conscious choice to go ahead and do it anyway, because I'm a grown ass woman. But now I do it less frequently and I usually make a slightly smaller portion. But popcorn isn't bad, and I'm not bad, even if my stomach hurts a little. Right, totally. The shame and the self-judgment and the down-spiraling into the story of being bad and wrong and unlovable, it's just not there. It's not necessary. 
So if your food choices bring you anxiety. If you aren't sure how to tell when you're hungry or full. To use a number on a scale to determine if you're deserving of the food that you desire. If you're frequently comparing yourself to others. To worry that you won't find love until you reach a certain weight. Or worry you'll lose love because of changes in your body over time. Maybe you want to start sorting through this. Like talk to a therapist, a dietitian, an intuitive eating coach. Find anti-dieting, body-positive friends or online forums where you can get support. They're out there. I mean, does your body not being perfect mean anything about you as a person? It means I'm real. You know, when you're young, you kind of think you have this infinite amount of time, and you don't. And you realize that when you hit maybe 35 or 40, and you see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's actually just a big train speeding towards you, and it's death. That's very bleak, but it's the reality. So how do you want to live your life? Ultimately, things don't change until we realize that the culture is kind of fucked up. (laughs) And it's kind of a, you know, anti-woman, anti-body culture that we live in do you want to keep living in that culture is that are you okay with that and maybe some people are going to be okay with it because they're on the winning side of that um and so they want to keep that going but for the rest of us that are sort of struggling it's like well do you really want to spend your whole life struggling on this or do you have some other things you might want to get done So what now? We are living in a world that's constantly drilling into us that we should be thinner, younger, more beautiful. Because of that, we're afraid of not being able to get what we need, afraid we won't be loved and therefore survive if we don't fit the mold of what is socially prescribed. We're afraid of losing control and all this unknown and unpredictable mess that life is. And now our world feels even more threatening and unstable as a man who openly judges and polices women's bodies has been elected to hold the highest office in this country. I mean, he literally owned a fucking beauty pageant. Ugh. So there's so much external and internal pressure and so much pain to cope with. So how do we, within all of that, take steps towards becoming more free and healthy in our relationship with our bodies and food, despite what the internal and external critics are telling us? I think it all boils down to starting to get back in touch with what our bodies feel. Mm, right. I mean, almost all of us are taught to push through our feelings and avoid them. And with relationships, some people isolate to avoid feeling the pain of rejection, or some people binge on relationships to avoid feeling alone. So with food, this happens also. We ignore cues that we're hungry, or we eat nonstop to avoid feeling our hunger at all. And some of us get caught swinging from one side of that pendulum to the other and back again. In moving beyond food and body obsession, I've had to work really hard to build my tolerance for the unknown, the uncontrollable, and all this vulnerability in relationship to others. And this is exactly what eating disorder recovery is all about. And this is what body positivity and moving away from dieting is all about. So, several years ago, my therapy led me to the decision to stop trying to fix my body 
and start standing up against my inner critic who was telling me I was wrong and bad all the time. It's hard work and I'm still having to set firm boundaries with the snide voice that says, maybe you shouldn't eat that. But since then, a lot has changed in my life. I started my own business, I launched this podcast, and I've been more creative and alive than I've been since I was a little girl. And I've watched my relationships with people really deepen. All of us, women especially, we're capable of so much. But when we get stuck on something that ultimately doesn't matter, we lose our power. When I stopped trying to change my body, I found myself. And I'm not so bad. Okay, it's that time. This episode was written and produced by me, Lily Sloan. And me, Jessica Brown. Jessica, by the way, is a therapist in training and sees patients at the Pierce Street Integral Counseling Center in San Francisco. I'll put a link up on the website so you can find her. Because she's amazing. Aw, shucks. Special thanks to Nicole Labby, Glennis Oyston, and Jesse Conweiler for sharing your personal and professional experience. And of course, thanks to the strangers at the bar and at the outdoor bar that is Dolores Park for letting me stick my microphone in your faces. Topher M. Lewis made the theme song. Additional music and sound design for this episode was by Lily. Please check out a therapistwalksintoabar.com for information about this episode's experts and links to some amazing anti-dieting, body-positive organizations, and resources. If you like what you heard here and want to hear more, Sign up for the newsletter on the website, subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts, and please follow on social media. Okay, I'm going to get real with you right now. If you haven't done it yet, like me, now's the time to leave the show a review in iTunes. Actually, I'm going to do it right now because I want everyone to know about it. And apparently, the more reviews, the more easily people will find it. So, uh, Jessica, do you want me to walk you through the process this time? I can figure it out myself. Okay. Okay. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. Lily! Lily! Come and do the joke with me! (laughs) Okay, so Lily. Yeah? What's the difference between an Italian mother and a Jewish mother? I don't know, Jessica. What? (laughs) The Italian mother says, eat or I'll kill you. And the Jewish mother says, eat or I'll kill myself. (laughs) Ha 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 ha!